Please be seated. So we all know what this section of the Sermon on the Mount means, right? It's really obvious. We're supposed to be pushovers and just let people roll all over us, while meanwhile we remain fonts of generosity and kindness, and that is the way to be good, angelic little Christians. Well, if that sounds a little bit too mousy and sweet for you to stomach this morning, I have good news for you because that is not what God requires of us at all. Although you might be forgiven for thinking that, because that is the interpretation that stood in the church for about 500 years, roughly since about the time the King James Version was authorized. But that interpretation was blown to bits in 1992 by theologian and Methodist minister Walter Wink who, in his book, Engaging the Powers, exhaustively researched Jesus' language and context, as well as the original interpretation of this text by early Christians. And he uncovered meaning that no one had talked about for centuries, which is, in a nutshell, that Jesus is by no means advocating passive acceptance of evil and wrongdoing. What he is advocating is active yet nonviolent resistance to an unjust society in his context, the Roman Empire. So even when Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer, that word resist is associated with violent resistance, specifically in warfare. So Jesus' audience would have heard this not as you should allow people to walk all over you, but as don't lash out with violence when someone mistreats you. So for example, turn the other cheek is referencing the practice of the upper classes in Roman society, the patricians backhandedly slapping their servants as a common form of discipline. And Jesus is saying, if someone in power over you backhands you, offer them your other cheek to slap also. It's not passive and sweet at all. It's kind of like a tough guy saying, oh, is that all you got? I got one over here, too. And we could go through and look at each verse of the lesson and see similar calls to resistance. But I want to zero in on the section here that I think makes this idea the most clear, which is verse 41, if someone forces you to go one mile, go also with them the second mile. Again, that's not about being a nice person. This refers to the common practice of the time by Roman soldiers who are constantly being sent out to far destinations throughout the vast empire, and they couldn't afford to pay for servants to travel with them and carry their gear. So Caesar, in all his magnanimity, provided that they could press a civilian into service to carry their stuff for them, as long as they only made them carry it for one mile. Well, it sounds like an attempt to be somewhat reasonable, to not force people away from their homes more than a mile. But I suspect the motivation was really to keep the soldiers who came from the lower classes themselves in their place. The class system was rigid. And if you appeared to go outside of your social level, that was very much frowned upon. So a rank-and-file soldier, looking like he's got his own servant because he's getting his stuff carried more than a short ways, 
could cause all kinds of problems. The other soldiers would be jealous. Even his superior might not be able to afford servants himself. And so if you tried to get someone to go more than one mile, you would yourself face punishment, which could include missing meals, being ostracized from the regiment, or even being beaten. So if a soldier forces someone into service, and then they say after one mile, that's okay, I'll keep carrying your stuff the second mile, then that soldier knows that he's in trouble. And he's going to have to basically wrestle his luggage back, or else he faces being punished. So this is a very creative way that Jesus is suggesting to resist this common abusive practice by the Roman conquerors. It's not the way of an eye for an eye, of violent resistance to wrongdoing, but that's not because Jesus was weak or wishy-washy. He was being very practical. And you don't have to look far from the headlines to see how an aggressive resistance to oppression can backfire, as it has done recently in Egypt and Ukraine, where governments use the aggressive tactics by just a few to justify cracking down murderously on the nonviolent majority who are simply demanding their rights. That was the case in Jesus' time as well. And unlike other Jewish leaders who were also being hailed as the Messiah, the one who would lead the people into freedom from Roman bondage through violent revolution, what Jesus advocated instead was a spiritual revolution, changing not who is in power at any given time, but changing the very definition of power. And he does this by rejecting absolutely the idea that a corrupt system has any legitimate authority over us. He's not telling people to passively accept what they're told, nor clearly does he believe that we should meet violence with more violence. Instead, Jesus advocates what Walter Wink called the third way, active, nonviolent resistance. Jesus proclaims that we are no longer slaves to our biological stress response of fight or flight in a situation in which we feel threatened. Instead, we can make a decision to not give the person mistreating us any power over our own choices. And this touches on the main theme that underlies the entire Sermon on the Mount, which is freedom from fear. Don't fear your enemies. Love them. Pray for them. Because God has the power over all things in heaven and earth, no matter how much a corrupt system may think that they hold the power. When I was 19, I had the privilege, along with a few dozen other churchgoers, of being arrested on the lawn of the South African Embassy in Washington, D.C. for protesting the brutal apartheid system that existed at the time. And the only reason that we did that was because we believed the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We believed that somehow the actions of a few Christian brothers and sisters could have an impact on an oppressive and brutal system, even though it was half a world away. I'm not pretending that our actions had a direct influence over the South African government, but the power of the gospel time and again throughout history transforms us from being powerless into being powerful 
and we become citizens no longer of whatever corrupt empire is ruling our day, but of the eternal kingdom of God. And the tactics that Jesus taught, like in this morning's reading, that free people from their fear and from their sense of powerlessness, those became the seed that eventually toppled the Roman Empire. Fortunately, we don't live in a system as brutal as Rome or apartheid, nor do we have to put up with people grabbing us and forcing us to carry their luggage for them. But we do live with an oppressive force that affects our lives day in and day out, and that is constant fear. We live in fear of everything. Fear of crime, fear that we won't have enough money for retirement, that our kids won't get good grades, that the car payment's going up. Fear, fear, fear constantly and everywhere you look. And Jesus' answer to that is the same answer that he gives against a corrupt government, that none of that has any power over you. Jesus is literally trying to get us to change our minds, to change them at the biological level and no longer be conditioned to that fight or flight response. Because once people realize that they can react differently and think differently, no corrupt system in the world has ever been able to stand against that, and no psychological oppression that we place on ourselves can stand against it either. Jesus does not want mousy Christians. He wants fearless ones. So practice active, nonviolent resistance against your fears and let God be in charge. And a really good way to practice that is right here at this table. When we come to receive the, the sacrament of communion, we place ourselves within a totally different realm, outside the reach of Caesar or any other corrupt authority, even outside the reach of the fears and anxieties of our own lives. If we can receive that freedom here and then take it out into the world, we have the power to transform ourselves and everyone around us. I don't know where God is leading the people of St. Wilfred's in our mission, but I do sense a certain fearlessness here that is the groundwork for all that we do in God. We are fearless in welcoming guests. We're fearless in our willingness to ask tough questions and to try new things. And we're fearless in ministry, not just everything that we do for outreach and giving, but look at all the people up here and all the people back there in the choir who've stepped up to do something for God, and all the ushers and the people in the sound booth, the intercessors, the lectors, I could go on and on. That takes guts to put yourself out there for God's mission. So we've already got that spirit that God calls us to. Now it's just a matter of being willing to hang on for the ride. Because I guarantee that God has a plan for St. Wilfred's, and we're all part of it, even in this very moment. May we seize that moment in absolute fearlessness, knowing that power lies not in the structures of this world, but in God alone. In the words of St. Paul to us this morning, let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, 
or death or the present or the future all belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.